Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure, on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 250. That's right, 250 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have a regular contributor, Nash Rose, with her segment, Nash in New York, talking with us from Manhattan about her life in the big city as a comedian, a comedic writer, and just a woman about town, among other things. We delve into Christmas in New York City. She reflects on the past year. We talk a bit about Trump and about women and about her hopes and plans for 2018. We talk a little bit about Alabama, a little bit about an experience she had recently where, you know, they were talking, folks were talking with her about black people being white and sounding white. And then we go off into language and, oh, it's, it's a great conversation with Nash. And uh, she also gets into her naughty and nice list for 2017. Yeah, we have a good time today with Nash in New York. We also have an EW essay titled Harvey, an essay short story by the great American humorist James Thurber written back in the early 20th century titled The Case Against Women. We also have a poem called Love, And all of this, as is always the case, will be ensconced, complemented by several great tunes. It's nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 250 of Troubadours and Tours. Lots of money. 
Harvey Pickall on the tube early this morning, not too long after I received a text from his niece through a broken marriage. A life in Cleveland in the last decades of the 20th century, jazz on a turntable, literature in the living room, pedestrian, intellectual, chic reality. Now it is more about net neutrality in your Humvee, as far as I could see from the ass print atop which I sit, trying to understand the man the best I can, avoiding the temptation for another drink, spilling my guts calculated, whilst looking out a sixth-floor window from a cheap vintage chair as my self-absorbed despair struggles with the guilt of the notion as to why anyone should really care because God is watching, because your neighbors are watching, because you might die soon, because you might live long with sickness? Is life only about payback and vindictive impulses and disarray, depending on the lead people propelled to the fray simply because of their unabashed ego and nepotistic position? How do I get through the day when my drive and focus is so id-driven and thus selfish. We need to struggle away from the years and years of culturally ingrained notions of life's purpose and reality. If ever the spirit and soul are to thrive alive instead of floundering in antipathy and empty sadness, inside some self-constructed neighborhood dive. Thank you, Harvey, 
for the look inside. Is that you? It's me. Hi. Hey, it's nice to have you back on the program. It's good to hear your voice on Troubadours and Rock on Tours once again. Thanks for having me again. It's been a while. It has been. It has been. And uh, we have several things to talk about today. First, let me let people know uh, a little bit about you. I mean, you're a writer, you're a comedian, and generally a woman about town in New York City. Nash in New York is the name of the segment. You're a regular <laughs> contributor, and uh, I wanna wanna get into some, I guess, seasonal questions. Uh, you ready? I'm ready. All right. First of all, tell us, if you would, about 
Christmas in New York City right now? The good, the bad, the beautiful, and maybe the ugly? I think that, and I always say that Christmas in New York City is unlike anything anywhere else. I feel like Christmas was made for New York City. <laughs> it's beautiful. There's people everywhere. They decorate everything. And I was actually by the the tree by Rockefeller. And I went to see the tree and I looked across the street and Saks Fifth Avenue has this huge, like, theatrical display of music and lights and it's just wonderful. So I'd say that's the the good and the beautiful of New York City. It's just it always feels like you're in a Christmas musical yeah. everywhere. It's just I love it. Um, I don't I don't think there's any bad except for me, uh, when I first moved here, this wasn't a bad, but now that I'm here and a little bit more jaded, I hate um, being in the touristy sections of New York because you can't get anywhere faster than an hour. <laughs> yeah. So many people, so much congestion. So yeah. much. Like I, I went to my this bakery, I always go to Magnolia Bakery because I wanted to get pumpkin cheesecake and usually i can just go in and out no problems but now that it's christmas tourist season the line was all the way outside of the bakery around the corner and i was like are you kidding <laughs> every day <laughs> so i said that's the bad and the ugly I don't, I don't think there's any more bad it's christmas it's a happy season <laughs> so you're a christmas person that's i like christmas even though i don't really celebrate it <laughs> But I love it. I think it's it's happy. Yeah, it is. It is. And like you said, New York City, uh, so many of uh, the great classic movies are set there. You know, So for many of us in the United States, at least, when we think uh, we, we have visions of Christmas, oftentimes some part of New York is, is in that vision. Yeah, I agree. It is really like – and then you go to Central Park and it's the ultimate winter wonderland with the carriages and the lights and the trees. It's beautiful. I love it. Are, are you uh, into the, the uh, sort of gift-giving commercial part of it too? Do you, or does that – do you frown on that? Um, I don't really – see, I grew up not celebrating Christmas. Um, so I never really got into the habit of doing it and none of my siblings either. But so I don't really have an opinion on it. I just it's never really just been a part of my life. I accept gifts always. But <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't have like a, a real opinion. I know some people are like that's um, unnecessary, and then some people are like it's what makes Christmas. And I I'm neutral. I stay in the middle. Well, what do you? Th I mean, you said it's a happy part uh, part of the year, time of year. What, why do you why do you find such happiness in the Christmas time and the, the Christmas uh, season? I think because everybody, well, the majority of the people in this country, at least, do celebrate Christmas. And from I don't know from their childhood growing up, it just produces just a happiness that of energy that they kind of dwell in, and, and so you have a bunch of people looking forward to this holiday, and it really shifts the dynamic of the entire season up to Christmas, where people are just nicer, the music puts you in a good mood, the lights are pretty, the decorations alone make you happy just seeing it, and then people are more like, it's the season of giving and being nice and family, and you just feel that all the way up to the actual day of Christmas, and then after Christmas, it all disappears. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, yeah, it's the hangover. 
I like it because I feel like everybody's in like just a better spirit. And Christmas Day, I since I was a kid, even though I didn't celebrate it, I loved just standing outside on Christmas Day because you can just feel that was the day that everybody was just so happy for the most part, at least. And I just love it. And when you're looking at those long lines, like at Magnolia Bakery, the the tourists and such, are those folks, uh, do, do they seem to have a good attitude or are they like pushing each other and come on, I, I want to go into No, I mean, no, because you tourists are always just happy to be experiencing what they're about to experience. If it was a bunch of New Yorkers, one, I don't think any New Yorkers that are there every day were in that line because it's just like, I'm just going to come back when it's not <laughs> tourist hour. Which is what I did. I left and I went back a few hours later when it was like normal hours. And I went right in and out. But my experience with tourists is they're just really happy just to be there. They'll wait hours in line for the Empire State Building because this is a part of the New York experience. So they seem pretty happy. And they're right next to the tree. <laughs> now, when we get to this time of year, too, besides uh, Christmas and, you know, Hanukkah and I know part of your your uh, heritage as as uh, a citizen, uh, a native of this country, is connected to the African American experience, uh, too. So I don't know if Kwanzaa is anything that is part of your experience, but uh, regardless of of what it is that informs uh, you uh, this time of year, also like most of us, we reflect on the end of this year, you know. And I'm asking yeah. you, I mean, your your reflection on this past year, 2017. My reflection. Um, <laughs> uh, my reflection is very personal. I've only been focusing on myself because <laughs> I'm selfish. But um, it's been a really good year for me. Uh, Comedy-wise, I've met unbelievable people. Um, some of my idols I've had a chance to shake hands with. It's been a great year. My career has been propelling. More projects have been opening up. And it just makes me excited about 2018. And I think I've kind of just chosen to really focus on myself and what I'm doing is because when I look even remotely outside of that, it's just D Donald Trump is the most depressing thing in the world. So <laughs> <laughs> that is also a reflection that I just don't really look at. <laughs> yeah, Donald Trump is depressing you too, huh? I think he's depressing everyone, even the people that voted for him, but they don't want to admit it. It's just like, God, what's next? Yeah, that's exactly it. What is next with this guy and his his cronies? It's uh, and he's a New Yorker too. I, you know, I mean, I think he's what is he from Queens? I think. I don't know anything about him. Yeah, I try to to, to know a little too. <laughs> I I just I don't I I can't with him. I can't. Would you say many of the folks that you uh, you know? Travel with you know your circle of friends and associates in New York are they? Uh, of the same mindset, do they not like Donald too? Uh, I would have to say a strong yes. My circle. A lot of my friends are comedians, and unless they're lying, we're all pretty anti-Trump, <laughs> especially the female comedians. Yeah, I mean, he with females. I mean, what's going on with with, with females? You know, right now in our country, in our society, is pretty intense and and uh you know when you look at the president and what he has seemed to get have been able to get a, away with uh is, is shocking to me you know given his his attitudes and the words that he uses his actions uh, with regard to women 
Yeah, it's it makes no sense. And a lot of people have been saying this uh, similar thing that it really makes no sense for him to have um, these sexual assault allegations against him, and he can still run the free world. But we have all these CEOs stepping down and losing jobs and losing endorsements and stuff like and, and huge punishment. But the quote unquote leader is you know getting away scot free, whatever. So yeah. Yeah. And Ivanka, are you impressed by her? No, I'm not at all. Um, some people are. I'm not. I don't really care for the entire family, to be honest. Yeah. Well, we're not going to spend the whole show bashing them, but I just, <laughs> it is a big part of what people are reflecting on, I think. You know, uh, the, our, our, the state of affairs in, in uh, the government, our, our U.S. government, and Trump is at the pinnacle of it. The tone that he said is really astounding. It's crazy because I, I keep going in my mind like, oh my God, it hasn't even been a year yet. I know. <laughs> I thought it was like at least three already. I'm like, we got one more year. And I'm like, no. no. We have three more solid years of this. It's crazy. Well, unless your, your uh, senator, Kristen Gillibrand, uh, gets her way, right? She wants yeah. him to resign. Do you think uh, we're going to have a female perhaps run for president the next go around on the Democratic ticket? Or do you hope for that? Um, I'm not really hoping for it, not, not hoping for it. Um, I don't know. I, I would think so because of such a, how big of a disappointment Hillary losing was for a lot of women. Um, I'm not someone who just wants the root for someone just for the sake of their gender. So I don't have a hope, but if there is a candidate that happens to be a woman and she's a great candidate, then I'll be, of course, I'll be happy. But, um, yeah, I'm not really, I don't know. I'm not really, like, inspired by politics these days. No, they're, they're sort of depressing. But at the same time, I think you'll agree that if we're not involved, uh, this is the, having Trump and all those scoundrels from predominantly the Republican Party in, in power is what happens, you know? So we, even though it's frustrating, we have to be involved in, in some significant way. I agree. I do agree. Um, I think that kind of came through with this past, uh, this big election, was it, um, with the whole Roy Moore thing? In Alabama, yeah. Uh, everybody was, that was cool. So I think that, I think... The result of that was kind of like a realization, like, all right, if we don't step in, we're going to have more of a disaster like Trump with, with in another form. So, and a lot of black people came through in that vote. So that was exciting. Yeah. I think it's important to get involved. Yeah. Yeah, that, you're, yeah that's exactly true. The uh, African-American population in Alabama is what made the difference, in particular, African-American women. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It is. To be disenfranchised no more. Right. <laughs> or at least a start. <laughs> right. Now, let's get back to your hopes and plans for 2018. You said you're excited about prospects uh, as, as a writer, as a comedian uh, in, in 2018. What are you, what are you hoping what are you, to, to, uh, to sort of actualize? Uh, what's, what's, what's going on? I am just getting to the next step of my stand-up, honestly. It's been, especially the past six months, have been just amazing as far as exposure and just an increase in talent. 
it, doing stand-up is one of the one of the few things in my life where I get to really witness um, the power of consistency and practicing. And it's nothing like beating on your craft and then seeing it, um, seeing the improvement almost immediately. So in 2018, I, um, I'm launching two podcasts, which I'm really excited about. One's a visual podcast. Another one is an audio podcast. And I'm the creative director on both of them. And I just have so many goals for my stand-up, trying to get past the comedy clubs, trying to get in festivals, and I'm just, I'm ready. I'm more ready than I've ever been, and I just have all this hopeful, positive energy just going into the new year. It's exciting. I'm excited about it. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. And you're predominantly, if I understand correctly, uh, an observational sort of uh, comedian, right? Observational, yes. Um I feel like my voice is kind of changing a little bit on stage. Um, I, I do observational, but it's more anecdotal observational. Like, um, more, it's, it seems to be um, progressing into more like an introspective view, like on my personal life, observational. And is it about just being a, a 30-something uh, individual trying to make their way? Is that... The, the point of view you come from, you know, is it, what, what informs it? The Really, I've been really pulling from my family and just literally personal experiences. I, I'm evolving a little bit and I, and I hope to continue to develop this, but storytelling is kind of becoming my, my, my style, if you will. So I just been pulling from like situations that happened with my family or my siblings or myself, my dating life or me standing in line at the bank, like anything. So it's sort of observational, but it's more um, about me. So whereas observational is more about other people. Yeah. <laughs> so I can't really say it's still observational. It's more anecdotal. But um, yeah, just pulling from myself, pulling from my life. Now, that, that leaves us uh, an opportunity for a nice segue. One of the things I, I suggested we might have you do is, is uh, share maybe something that you did experience recently, some situation that sort of made an impression on you. Impression? <laughs> There's so many uh, situations that made an impression on me. Um, I, I don't know if impression is the right word for this situation, but um, I was shocked because... One thing that I like about living in New York City is the diversity and um, like, you know, I grew up in Scranton and I've, I've experienced different levels of uh, racism. So it's nice being in a place where it becomes like almost a distant thought of what that's like. And I was just saying to my mom, I was like, you know what I like about um, hanging out with comedians is that, you know, everybody's just so diverse and there's no racism and then it was like I jinxed myself because two days later I was hanging out after a show with a couple of comedians and one and so they were so I host this uh it's actually an open mic with um two other black comedians uh a woman and a man and we joke around and we call it the urban mic because it's they, for some reason they put the only three black comedians in the organization so, well there's another one but We'd say the only three black comedians on one mic to host when we could have mixed it up. But after this show, um, another comic came up, and he's white, and he's, like, noticing that, you know, they put all of the black comedians on this to host this particular show every week. 
And then he goes, it's funny. It's like, it's, it's funny that they have um, three of the whitest black people hosting. And I was like, hmm. what? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> the whitest black people do, please indulge me. And his point was like, well, you, you, you talk white. All three of you talk white. And I'm like, what is talking white exactly? Because if you're going to say using proper English, I think we both now realize how dumb you sound. <laughs> <laughs> and so it just kind of went and turned into him trying to dig himself out of that hole. But it left an impression on me that I was like, oh, yeah, it's still, it's still a thing. It's still all of these misconceptions, these little, these accidental racist, you know, um, Accusations. I don't know. I can't think of the word. My mind went blank there. Yeah, it's like prejudice in a way. Yeah, it's like I was like I haven't heard that since I was like in high school in Scranton, which I used to hear all the time. You talk white, or you act white, or you're a white black girl, whatever that means. And so uh, it was just this big conversation, and three of us, and he couldn't understand why the three of us were because we all, all three of us, do speak very proper. We're also not from New York City, um, so we don't have a New York accent. So it stands out even more, but we're like, we're all really offended and he did, he really couldn't understand. And I saw him again, not too long ago and he still didn't get it, but I was just like, you know what, let his ignorance be bliss and we'll still be comedian friends from a distance. <laughs> from a distance. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's strange. I mean, I'm, I, I, from my own experience, you know, uh, in my own world as, uh, uh, and I guess a Caucasian, though I don't really consider myself a Caucasian, though I think other people do. I feel more Mediterranean in my, my uh, experience as a Southern Italian American first generation. But nonetheless, from my experience, it is like, you know, are you, you're not really acting the way that I think you should act. And that happens for a lot of people. But I think more so in the white community, at least, when they are thinking about what it means to be uh, a black person and an African-American person. You know, you're supposed to act and talk and sound, use a certain lingo. And if you don't, you know, you're, you're odd to, to those folks. And I, I think it even exists, and you would be able to correct me if I'm wrong, in the African-American community, too, in the black community, too. You know, are you trying not to be black? Have you ever experienced that? I haven't experienced that, but I have experienced other people, other black people say that to black people doing things that they felt were white. So like, I don't think in the, in the community and oh, I can't speak for the entire community, but my experience within my community of black people is, um, we understand the difference between, um, we understand that it's not the same speaking properly is not the same as talking white. So I don't get that for that, but I've seen like um, maybe uh, we'll see a black kid, you know, dressed goth and skateboarding. That's still heavily believed to be acting white. So I have witnessed things like that. <laughs> yeah, I've never gone through it, surprisingly. Unless not to my face, but I've witnessed other people go through it and make the ignorant accusation of acting white or acting black even to white people. <laughs> it's such an odd, weird human thing, isn't it? You know, we're we're supposed to uh, fall into some sort of category in our own minds and in the minds of others. And if we don't, there's turbulence of some sort. You know, there's it's very it's very silly stereotyping, is what it is. Yeah, yeah, it is, and it's limiting. 
You know, I mean, you keep going back to speaking uh, proper English. I mean, that's what any person, I suppose, has the choice to do in, in a society, in a culture where English is the predominant language. And if you do that, it's not because, I would think, you're trying to get away from anything else. You're just, it's, you know, a cultural sort of in your mind imperative to, to, to excel at that, the language that everybody's speaking. Uh, so to be judged as, you know, abandoning or not being true to something else because you're, you're, you're doing that is, is, I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's healthy. I, I, I remember when I was in college, undergraduate school, I uh, had a, a group of, of friends uh, that were from Detroit and they were African-Americans. And they, when I first met them, uh, I couldn't understand what the heck they were saying half the time because they're all from the same neighborhood and they had a distinct <laughs> lingo that they used to speak. And, and I would just ask them questions, you know, what the heck does that mean? And I would learn that lingo. But then I'd see these same guys in class giving a presentation of some sort and they would speak, you know, perfect English. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's you know, that's what I do too. When I'm with my friends, we have our, you know, colloquialisms that we rely on and our weird little... Uh, idiosyncrasies in language. But then when I'm out with the general public, I try to speak as proper as possible. Yeah, I mean, I speak like this all the time, but there are a lot of people who do switch it up in different scenarios and different people. Yeah, It's interesting. It is, it is. And in a diverse, open society, that should be cool. It should be. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just when you start trying to... Uh, the thing with, like... The, oh, and he said something else, too. As the, the one girl, she was trying to make a point, and he, like, cut her off, and he was like, yeah, 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 for show. Like, trying to be funny, but, like, smart. And the thing that's offensive about telling a white, uh, a black person that they speak white by anyone is the underlying implication that being proper and what's considered right and correct is... Um, it equals being white. Like everything that's good and right and proper means you're just you're just you're just being white. You're following the white path, and that's what's most um, offensive about it. Because anything improper then is more appropriate for you because you're black, and that's how that's why it's offensive. And I don't think I don't think he intentionally meant to say that, but it doesn't change the fact that it's an offensive thing to say. Yeah. Yeah, perpetuates that mentality, nonetheless, yeah. whether he meant it to or not. Uh, I agree. Excellent. Fascinating conversation, Nash, from New York, <laughs> in New York, here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. We only have a couple of minutes left, believe it or not, uh, wow. in, our, in this go-around. Um, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to share with us your 2017 Naughty and Nice list. You are listening to Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure, on Radio Free Brooklyn. What is that exactly? <laughs> well, who would you put on the naughty list for this past year? Who would you put on the nice list? If you know, like if you were Santa Claus, so to speak. Oh, uh, the naughty list would definitely be Donald Trump, 100%. Um, for the next however many years he's in the office, he'll be on the naughty list for me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the nice list. Who's on my nice list? I am. Just kidding. Um, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to put Obama on the nice list. <laughs> just to keep it nice and presidential. Because Obama, even though he has not been president this past year, 
he has still been on when he should have been during all these tragedies that went by and and his commentary to the news and and showing his support for like the hurricanes and the people all over the place still is just amazing. I still I just love him so much. Yeah. Plus I just watched a video about him and his wife, so yeah, but he, if I can't do him then it's either gonna be him or my mom, so <laughs> both great people. I love your mom. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> yeah, she's cool. She's very cool. Um so any any uh contact information or any shows or whatever you want to share with the listeners so they could uh see your work? Sure. Um well I have shows coming up in twenty eighteen, but the dates aren't solidified. However, you can check my website out, it's nashrose.com or my blog where um I have a I don't know if I told you about my blog. We keep up with the up and coming talent in New York City in the comedy world and it's called Stellar Underground and you can check that out at stellarunderground.com between the two I'll be keeping up with show dates and all of my projects coming anyway so excellent that works yeah. excellent thank you so Nash Rose any, any closing thoughts to the listeners before we, we send you off into the holidays if you meet a nice black person that speaks well don't tell them they're talking white <laughs> Wise words. <laughs> That's all I got. Oh, and come to New York City for Christmas because it's, like, amazing. Thank you so much, Nash. And uh, <laughs> are you going to be there for the dropping of the ball, too, for New Year's Eve? No, no, I avoid that too much. Too many people. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be agree. I'll be watching on a television somewhere. <laughs> well, have a wonderful holiday. Thank you for taking time out uh, with us. And I look forward to talking with you again on the program in 2018. Likewise, you have a good holiday too. Thank you, Nash. All right, bye. Bye. I really can't but stay. But baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. But wait. baby, it's cold outside. This evening has been, been hoping that you drop so in. very nice. I'll hold your hands, they're just like My ice. mother will start to Beautiful, worry. what's your And hurry? father will be pacing the floor. Listen to the fireplace So roll. really I'd better scurry. Beautiful, please don't well, hurry. maybe just a half a drink Put more. Put some records on while I The pour. neighbors might think. Maybe it's bad out there. What's in this drink? No camps to be had out there. I wish I knew your how eyes are like starlight now. to break the spell. I'll take your hat. <gasps> your hair looks swell. I ought to say no, no, Mind no. Mind if say. I'm moving. At closer. least I'm gonna say that I tried. What's the sense of hurting my pride? I really can't stay. Baby, don't hold out. Baby, oh, but it's cold outside. Must but go. baby, it's cold outside. The answer but is no. Baby, it's cold outside. This welcome is been lucky that you dropped so in. nice and warm. Look out the window at that store. My sister will be suspicious. Gosh, your lips look. 
My brother will be there at the Waves door. Upon a tropical shore. My maiden aunt's mind is Ooh, vicious. Maybe just a cigarette more. Never such a blizzard before. I've got to get home. But baby, you freeze out there. Say, uh, lend me a coat. It's up to your knees out there. You've really been great. I thrill when you touch my hand. But don't you see? How can you do this thing to me? There's bound to be talk tomorrow. Think of my lifelong sorrow. At least there will be plenty in. If you caught pneumonia and I died, really can't get stay. over that old doubt. Ooh, baby, ah, but it's cold And now a short story by the great American humorist James Thurber written in the early part of the 20th century. It's titled, The Case Against Women. A bright-eyed woman, whose sparkle was rather more of eagerness than of intelligence, approached me at a party one afternoon and said, Why do you hate women, Mr. Thurberg? I quickly adjusted my fixed grin and denied that I hated women. I said I did not hate women at all. But the question remained with me, and I discovered when I went to bed that night that I had been subconsciously listing a number of reasons I do hate women. It might be interesting, at least it will help pass the time, to set down these reasons just as they came up out of my subconscious. In the first place, I hate women because they always know where things are. At first blush, you might think that a perverse and merely churlish reason for hating women, but it is not. Naturally, every man enjoys having a woman around the house who knows where his shirt studs and his briefcase are and things like that. But he detests having a woman around who knows where everything is, even things that are of no importance at all, such as, say, the snapshots her husband took three years ago at Elbow Beach. The husband has never known where these snapshots were since the day they were developed and printed. He hopes, in a vague way, if he thinks about them at all, that after three years they have been thrown out. But his wife knows where they are, and so do his mother, his grandmother, his great-grandmother, his daughter, and the maid. They could put their fingers on them in a moment with that quiet air of superior knowledge which makes a man feel that he is out of touch with all the things that count in life. A man's interest in old snapshots, unless they are snapshots of himself in action with a gun, a fishing rod, or a tennis racket, languishes in about two hours. A woman's interest in old snapshots, particularly of groups of people, never languishes. It is always there. As the years roll on, as strong and vivid as it was right at the start, she remembers the snapshots when people come to call. And just as the husband, having mixed drinks for everybody, sits down to sip his own, she will say, George, I wish you would go and get those snapshots we took at Elbow Beach and show them to the Murphys. The husband, as I have said, doesn't know where the snapshots are. All he knows is that Harry Murphy doesn't want to see them. Harry Murphy wants to talk, just as he himself wants to talk. But Grace Murphy 
says that she wants to see the pictures. She is crazy to see the pictures. For one thing, the wife, who has brought the subject up, wants Mrs. Murphy to see the photo of a certain costume that the wife wore at Elbow Beach in 1933. The husband finally puts down his drink and snarls, Well, where are they then? The wife, depending on her mood, gives him either the look she reserves for spoiled children or the one she reserves for drunken workmen and tells him he knows perfectly well where they are. It turns out, after a lot of give and take, the slightly bitter edge of which is covered by forced laughs, that the snapshots are in the upper right-hand drawer of a certain desk, and the husband goes out of the room to get them. He comes back in three minutes with the news that the snapshots are not in the upper right-hand drawer of the certain desk. Without stirring from her chair, the wife favors her husband with a faint smile, the one that annoys him most of all, her smiles, and reiterates that the snapshots are in the upper right-hand drawer of the desk. He simply didn't look. That's all. The husband knows that he looked. He knows that he prodded and dug and excavated in that drawer and that the snapshots simply are not there. The wife tells him to go look again and he will find them. The husband goes back and looks again. The guests can hear him growling and cursing and rattling papers. Then he shouts out from the next room, They are not in this drawer, just as I told you, Ruth. The wife quietly excuses herself and leaves the guests and goes into the room where her husband stands, hot, miserable, and defiant, and with a certain nameless fear in his heart. He has pulled the desk drawer out so far that it is about to fall on the floor, and he points at the disarray of the drawer with bitter triumph, still mixed with that nameless fear. Look for yourself, he snarls. The wife does not look. She says with quiet coldness, What is that you have in your hand? What he has in his hand turns out to be an insurance policy and an old bank book and the snapshots. The wife gets off the old line about what it would have done if it had been a snake, and the husband is upset for the rest of the evening. In some cases, he cannot keep anything on his stomach for 24 hours. Another reason I hate women, and I am speaking, I believe, for the American male generally, is that in almost every case where there is a sign reading, please have exact change ready, a woman never has anything smaller than a $10 bill. She gives $10 bills to bus conductors and change men in the subways and other such persons who deal in nickels and dimes and quarters. Recently in Bermuda, I saw a woman hand the conductor on the little railway there a bill of such huge denomination that I was utterly unfamiliar with it. I was sitting too far away to see exactly what it was, but I had the feeling that it was a $500 bill. The conductor merely ignored it and stood there waiting. The fare was just one shilling. Eventually, scrabbling around in her handbag, the woman found a shilling. All the men on the train who witnessed the transaction tightened up inside. That's what a woman with a $10 bill or a 20 or a $500 bill does to a man in such situations. 
she tightens him up inside. The episode gives him the feeling that some monstrous triviality is threatening the whole structure of civilization. It is difficult to analyze this feeling, but there it is. Another spectacle that depresses the male and makes him fear women, and therefore hate them, is that of a woman looking another woman up and down to see what she is wearing. The cold, flat look that comes into a woman's eyes when she does this, the swift coarsening of her countenance, and the immediate evaporation from it of all humane quality make the male shudder. He is likely to go to his stateroom or his den or his private office and lock himself in for hours. I know one man who surprised that look in his wife's eyes and never afterward would let her come near him. If she started toward him, he would dodge behind a table or a sofa as if he were engaging in some unholy game of tag. That look, I believe, is one reason men disappear and turn up in Tahiti or the Arctic or the United States Navy. I, to quit hiding behind the generalization of, quote, the male, hate women because they almost never get anything exactly right. They say, I have been faithful to thee, Sinara, after my fashion, instead of in my fashion. They will bet you that Alfred Smith's middle name is Aloysius instead of Emmanuel. They will tell you to take the 257 train on a day that the 257 does not run, or if it does run, does not stop at the station where you are supposed to get off. Many men, separated from a woman by this particular form of imprecision, have never showed up in her life again. Nothing so embitters a man as to end up in Bridgeport when he was supposed to get off at Westport. I hate women because they have brought into the currency of our language such expressions as alrighty and yes indeedy and hundreds of others. I hate women because they throw baseballs or plates or vases with the wrong foot advanced. I marvel that more of them have not broken their backs. I marvel that women who coordinate so well in languorous motion look uglier and sillier than a goose-stepper when they attempt any form of violent activity. I had a lot of other notes jotted down about why I hate women, but I seem to have lost them all, except one. That one is to the effect that I hate women because, while they never lose old snapshots or anything of that sort, they invariably lose one glove. I believe that I have never gone anywhere with any women in my whole life who did not lose one glove. I have searched for single gloves under tables in crowded restaurants and under the feet of people in darkened movie theaters. I have spent some part of every day or night hunting for a woman's glove. If there were no other reason in the world for hating women, that one would be enough. In fact, you can leave all the others out. Listen to me 
stray, but I say that the woman of today is smarter than men in every way. covered rooftops and trees stock glamorous in the moonlight translucent tint of blue hue in the sun and I am home with a cup of tea and rye whiskey ready for she my love to come home so we might bone then sleep the day away huddled but to crotch Unabashed, arm in arm, not alone. This year's 
have it, episode 250 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks that made this episode possible. First and foremost, our regular contributor, comedic writer, comedian, and woman about town, Nash, for talking with us within her segment, Nash in New York. Happy New Year, Nash. I also like to thank James Thurber, the great American humorist. We like to thank these musical artists as well. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The Kinks, Weezer, Johnny Mercer and Margaret Whiting, Calypso Rose, Billy Holiday, Terrence Blanchard and Branford. Marsalis too. Until next week, maybe even next year, depending on when you're listening, enjoy this week and the rest of this year. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. <laughs>